Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Ada Palmer. Literary Alchemists, I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Melanie Metters. And you've tuned into a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is a chance for listeners to live vicariously through us and sit down with amazing creators to explore their craft and methods so we can steal them for our own in our quest for world domination. All right, all right. It's for our never-ending quest to make good art. <laughs> but world domination is not off the table, right? <laughs> oh, of course not. Oh, good. Not Excellent. <laughs> I love it. We're, we're, we're kind of like this virtual plug-in. We're, we're, we're a virtual life uh, uh, module that people can plug into <laughs> and, and dig in. That's brilliant. You were clearly a nerd, and I love that about you. <laughs> Dear friends, Melanie Metters, who is doing amazing things uh, both creatively for herself and on the behalf of such uh, exalted publishing companies as Ragnarok Publications. Ma'am, I am so delighted to have you sitting in the co-host chair. We are going to rock this and and have an adventure of writerly proportions. Thank you so much for making the time. Oh, thank you for having me. This is this is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. Well, what, what's your what's your libation of choice this afternoon, Melanie? What, what's sitting in the glass by the microphone there? Um, well, if I was good, I would say, oh, it's just water, but I am having a nice glass of red wine. See? Totally legit. Totally legit. And, and by all means, t- sit back, take a pull on that fine, fine ruby vintage uh, that, that you have sitting there. Let me introduce you to our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. May I? Yes. Thank you. Excellent. Well, friends, uh, you know, if you've listened to this podcast at all, you know that I always sign off with the reminder that you find what you're looking for and that when you actively seek out awesomeness, you pretty much find it. Now, the key to that philosophy and to the delights it inevitably brings is based on nurturing a healthy curiosity and if there was ever a guest host who embodied that ideal we have her in the rtp virtual studios right now uh, she currently lives in chicago teaching uh, in the history department at the university of chicago but she grew up in annapolis maryland And one of her most vivid memories as a young child was searching the kids' section of the local library for a Dr. Seuss book she hadn't read yet. Now, someone, doubtless a covert agent for the gods of speculative fiction, had accidentally misshelved a huge copy of The Hobbit in amongst the copies of One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. And it sported a cover featuring a mighty dragon, which, as we all know, is like pheromones for the nascently nerdy. Her father who was a great fan of science fiction and fantasy and owned several copies of The Hobbit already, checked it out anyway and read it to her. Now, this is clearly a brilliant man. Not only did he guide his daughter into the lush and lyrical realms of epic fantasy, but he also affirmed the value of the library, instilling a reverence for those repositories of history, science, and culture in his young daughter. And with him, she would explore the scope and breadth of speculative media, including comics and eventually anime and manga. 
Now, her mother was an equally inspired nurturer, someone who had a deep love of music and art and wanted to share that with her daughter. At the age of two, our guest host began, age of two, mind you, our guest host began taking violin lessons and was soon taking piano lessons as well. And by elementary school, she was already performing in school choirs. And so the stage is set for the epic adventure of her life. The principal players of speculative fiction, art and music, and academic rigor have taken their places and the overture begins to play. Now, in elementary school, she wrote a one-paragraph short story about blue and silver alien raccoons on planet Forest. And apparently her father actually printed out this this masterpiece on their brand new high-tech dot matrix printer and our guest host illustrated it lovingly with scribbles. Now, that tale would continue to grow in her mind until in the fourth grade she started drafting Children of the Forest, a vaguely Robin Hood story about a bunch of animal spirits living in Sherwood Forest who were the sons and daughters of Hern the Hunter. And Now, look, I know this is a story crafted by a fourth grader, but am I crazy to want to read that? I mean, does that not sound like a fabulous tale? Holy crap. Now, around that same time, our guest host started an experimental program designed by a music theory instructor who wanted to try teaching music theory to younger kids. And she started playing the recorder, which, as anyone who has ever played the recorder will tell you, is the gateway drug for Renaissance music, which leads to many unique discoveries like close harmony a cappella. And that form of musical expression in particular would anchor itself in her heart and her imagination, as we'll see shortly. Now, as her elementary and high school years waxed and waned, she would take summer classes on essay writing at Johns Hopkins and a course on prose poetry at the Interlochen Center for the Arts. But by 1997, at the end of her sophomore year at the Bryn Mawr School in Baltimore, she had, not surprisingly, become bored with the mundane rigors of high school education. So she tested out, graduated, and began attending Simons Rock College two years early. And it was here that a random curiosity would set her on the course of a grand academic adventure. Now, through the college's great books reading course, she learned of a theory of Sigmund Freud's that she was confident would not have existed prior to World War I. Some extensive research bore out her theory. Nothing akin to Freud's theory was even whispered among the philosophers and theorists of earlier times. And suddenly, the idea of the history of ideas began to take root and would inform her scholastic endeavors from that point forward. And in service to that and other inspirations, she transferred to Bryn Mawr College during her final two years of university to get a better foundation of Latin and ancient Greek so she could be a more effective historian of the Renaissance era. And it was during her time at Bryn Mawr College that she wove multiple strands of her heart's delight into one marvelous tapestry by founding a music ensemble named Sassafras, a singing group performing original a cappella folk music heavily influenced by, you guessed it, fantasy, mythology, and science fiction themes. 
And while the group has many songs and CDs to their credit, the song cycle titled Sundown, Whispers of Ragnarok, stands out. It took 10 years for our guest host to compose it, and it examines not just the stories of the Viking culture, but also the world and the people that created them. Now, she graduated from Bryn Mawr in 2001 and attended Harvard for a PhD to study with James Hankins, whose insights and inspirations into the discovery of classical thought in the Renaissance fit perfectly with her own pursuits. She completed her PhD in 2009, but not before spending a lot of time doing research in Rome and Florence, uh, including once as a graduate fellow and once funded by a Fulbright Fellowship. Now, it was also during this time that she was writing a bi-weekly column on manga, cosplay, fashion, and otaku culture for Tokyopop.com. And she was also working as a historical and linguist consultant for Funimation, was the mythology and language consultant for ADV Films, and was an anime network field representative. <laughs> then, when she returns to Florence in 2011 to continue her research, she also launched her blog, Ex Urbe, which translates to From the City, which was based on a series of letters she would write home to friends about her time and research in Italy. Now, guys, at this point, I have to stop because it's going to start getting real crazy real quick. Uh, at this point in the patented roundtable stalkerish intro, we usually get into the experience of the first publications and recap the high points of the guest host achievements. But today, <laughs> that is not going to happen. If I took the time to even summarize her accomplishments as a musician, a scholar, and a literary alchemist, uh, we'd have time for like one question <laughs> before we had to sign off. So <laughs> suffice it to say that her insatiable curiosity has led her to pursue a radiant spectrum of interests, and she has committed utterly to each of her creative and academic passions. But her latest achievement, however, uh, is well worth mentioning. Her recently released Two Like the Lightning, published by Tor Books, is a sci-fi tale set in the 25th century that is an alchemy of all her great passions in the world, and is receiving accolades from Boing Boing, NPR, Scientific American, the Chicago Review of Books, and more. Dear friends, she speaks three languages and reads an additional four. In her mind, a day without gelato is a day not worth living, and she she just led her class at the University of Chicago through a LARP that reenacted the papal election of 1490. Holy crap. Dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here at the round table, Ada Palmer. Ada, honestly, I'm counting it as one of the eighth wonders of the world that we were actually able to secure some time with you amid all the <laughs> fabulosity that you are pursuing in the world. Thank you so very much for making the time, ma'am. My pleasure. I mean, I've been looking forward to this. It is, in fact, true that I am currently ditching a Latin translation <laughs> which is going on in the other room and to which I will return when we have finished. That's okay. They'll you got be in okay. They'll be okay. <laughs> they will. you got interns on it. they got it Graduate covered. students can take care of themselves for That's that's right. That's right. You got to teach them independence early. Otherwise, they cling to you forever. <laughs> I have two tiny corrections to the bio. One oh, is that I never graduated from high school. I dropped out. Really? Uh, I, I do not have a high school diploma. I have a PhD from Harvard, but I do not have a high school diploma. 
<laughs> All right, then. Fair enough. One of these funny details, you do not technically need a high school diploma to apply to colleges. They don't check. Wow. Who knew that, right? Yeah. Uh, not a lot of people. And it was the papal auction of 1492. Oh, God. Uh, oh. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna fix that in the doc right now, just because I saved these and rolled them out in a couple of years, just as memories. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Yes, good. It was a very violent reenactment this year. They destroyed the eastern half of Spain, the city of Pisa. Um, they um, had a big war against the Ottoman Empire and nearly destroyed the city of Genoa. But in the end, it was okay. Good. Good. Now you say this year. Have you done this before? Yes, I do this every time I do my Italian Renaissance class. Oh my God, how many of, how many of these LARPs have you enacted? This was the fourth one. <laughs> and it's always interesting to see which bits of the world get burned to the ground. Oh, I wish, I wish you were my Renaissance, Italian Renaissance teacher. God, no kidding, right? Oh. If nothing else, we'd have we'd have a use for all those costumes we have sitting in our co- in our closet. <laughs> right? <laughs> that, you could write that off as study materials. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 before we get into our 20 minutes with and we start talking writerly things, I did have one little sidebar question for you. Um, you've mentioned in, in many of your interviews that you love metaphysics. And, and I found that term to mean different things to different people. So I was curious, in, in that passion for metaphysics, how, how do you define that? And, and what is it that so captivates you? I know it kind of went right into the deep end on you, didn't we? <laughs> okay, but I'm gonna answer this. I'm gonna answer this question in relation to shonen manga, if that's okay. Sure, absolutely. Okay, so two very well-known shonen manga are Naruto and Bleach, both of which involve large numbers of teenage boys fighting for long periods of time for no particular reason, <laughs> and both of which are a lot of fun. Yes. Uh, and Naruto is about ninjas. And Bleach is about the afterlife and a bunch of different layers of reality and how souls move back and forth between the different layers of reality and how the spirits of people who are dead go to this one place where there are monsters and then Shinigami, which are death spirits, sort of fight things and defend it. And so from that description, you would guess that there was more metaphysics in Bleach than there is in Naruto, since Bleach involves things like the afterlife, the soul, what's what it's made of, etc. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, and on the surface there are, but actually since Naruto involves several spells which involve like summoning ghosts and summoning monsters and interacting with them, if you sit through a hundred episodes of both, uh, at least the anime versions of them, Naruto actually ends up explaining what souls are made of, how they move around, how you interact with them, how they work, much more coherently and with fewer loose, confusing threads than Bleach. <laughs> Despite the fact that Bleach is about the afterlife and Naruto <laughs> is about ninjas. Now, this is not a criticism of either one of them as entertainment, because both of them are vastly entertaining things. Uh, but that, to me, is a good answer to what is metaphysics, or more specifically, your real question, which is sort of what is a story with metaphysics in it. Okay. Uh, because a story with metaphysics in it is a story that touches on larger questions about what the universe is made of, the, t- the nature of the soul, creation, something beyond what you interact with in the material world. Excellent. Uh, even if that thing is proof that there is nothing beyond the material world, even <laughs> you're that. St- you're still having the discussion, so you're still talking metaphysics. Exactly. Okay. Uh, And I love stories that have that, both because I think it's very, very interesting to think about different possible metaphysicses and people make up different ones for different worlds. But more importantly, because I think when, uh, when you have a story and there are characters and the characters are then confronted with some truth about metaphysics, 
they discover ghosts are real or ghosts are not real or, you know, the universe was made by a being and the being has this ad- these attributes. You wind up with characters who are suddenly in a very interesting decision-making space. Sure. Where their decisions are suddenly so different from both people in our world and people uh, in the rest of their world because they've discovered a great thing. And so it makes stories in which characters face big, deep, interesting moral questions or decision-making questions that are very powerful and tend to, at least for me, give a lot more punch than a story that confines itself to the uh, the surface layer of the world that it is set in. Sure, and that, and that kind of links back to your to your academic thesis, uh, the, the notion of the history ideas and how the perception of your reality uh, informs the ideas and the pursuits that you have within it. Exactly. I mean, when I spend my time reading works and studying people who are in the Middle Ages or in the Renaissance, they live not just in a different society in a different earth, but within their own minds, they actually live in a different universe because they have different ideas about how big the universe is, where Earth is in it, uh, where knowledge comes from, how thinking and cognition work. Uh, and if you take them at face value and sort of imagine them as a, as a second world fantasy world in which they're correct, it's a really fascinating universe. <laughs> and the decisions that they make living in that universe about what is and isn't worth dying for, for example, are nothing like the decisions we would make if we believe that we live in a large material universe with a heliocentric a uh, solar system going around a large galaxy in the middle of a big void, right. uh, which makes you make different kinds of decisions. Which which uh, informs so, an understanding of their world based on their decision and value system in the world they perceive it to be. Exactly. Cool. <laughs> See, and I knew, I knew <laughs> this is a rabbit hole. We're going to avoid it at this point. <laughs> uh, so, but I, <laughs> thank you very much, Ada. That's that's fascinating. And what were the name of those animes again? Because I'm writing them down. Because I'm going to oh, go watch uh, them. Bleach, Bleach, and Naruto. I, I mean, I, they aren't going to be in my top twenty shows. I would recommend particularly <laughs> to watch, unless what you want is to spend a lot of time watching people having an exciting sword fight. And if that is what you want, so for example, if you are, I don't know, uh, stuck in Florence by yourself on a Fulbright with a cold and have to spend four days in bed and really want something to entertain you and your Latin dictionary is missing, then you might want to marathon all of Bleach because that would be a really great way to spend several days. And then every so often you just get up and stick your head out and wave at the pizza place across the street and they know that that means that you want to pizza with sausage and arugula and then they will make one and bring it to you and then you can continue to be sick and marathon bleach that's so a very specific hypothetical there ada um. <laughs> so for the next for the next time that happens i would suggest dragon ball z too yes. you you could watch that one and see previously on dragon ball z and then the but episode I, would end as soon as that part is done the recap, <laughs> i swear yeah, I mean, I would tend to use Dragon Ball Z Kai for that reason because it has more more action going on. But uh, oh, uh, if you want people with the biggest swords having the biggest sword fights, well, actually, Sengoku Basara has even bigger swords than Bleach. But Bleach, I think, is more successful in a lot of ways. Noted, duly yes. noted. All right. Yeah, each anime has its own ecological niche, and and that was the watching people fight a lot one. 
I'm sure there's a DNA of anime that we could explore <laughs> on another on another episode. We we have other <laughs> questions for you uh, at this point. Uh, I'm going to go ahead actually and set the clock. We're gonna we're gonna get official on our ass here and say, <laughs> all right, we are going to start our 20 minutes with Ada Palmer, and we'll ignore the clock. I have every every confidence. We're gonna we're gonna blow that one up. Um, I'm I'm going to start us off, Ada, if I could. Uh, uh, you did an interview back in May of 2016 with Marissa Lingen, uh, and you discussed uh, very interestingly, I thought, the, the transition, your transition from being taught to teaching, and, and you examined some of your own experiences of being a student, and I was wondering, um, since this is a podcast for people you know, aspiring to improve their craft, to be students of a craft, uh, what would you consider to be the ideal qualities for a student of a craft? What, what qualities and, and virtues should they foster and, and build up in their own uh, uh, mind and heart? Um, I think that's a very broad question. Yes, it is a very broad question. A couple of things. Uh, I would say that one extremely useful skill is being able to zoom in and out of how narrowly and broadly you're thinking about a question. Okay. Uh, and so if we're thinking about someone who is training to be a carpenter, someone who's capable of zooming in to look in intricate detail at how one particular joint is put together, and then also capable of zooming out and thinking about the structure of the whole chair and where weight is going to fall. And then also able to zoom out beyond that and think about the entire house in which this object is going to be used. Okay. And and not be stuck in one of those zooms. Okay. Uh, and so similarly, if you then compare that to the writing craft, someone who's capable of thinking about a single paragraph and the flow and structure of that paragraph and being genuinely excited about it. Uh, who's also capable of zooming out and thinking about the flow and structure of a chapter, who's also capable of zooming out and thinking about an entire genre mm. uh, and its structures without getting too caught up in one level of that thing. Okay. I can see that being incredibly valuable. So you have a sense of context, not only in, in the minute and intimate levels, but also in the very broad macroscopic levels. And positioning yourself within that context is the key to crafting a strong story. Yes? Well, and it all, it's also because while you're asking a craft, which is not just knowledge, it's not memorizing all the elements of the periodic table it's it's doing it hands-on like carpentry and writing is very much a craft when you zoom out and work at one level for a while and then zoom back into another level again you discover you've learned new things at the other level that make you better at it so if you're constantly constantly just working on joints and joints and joints and joints and joints or paragraphs and just think obsessing about trying to make your paragraph really good you make progress. You genuinely do. But if you work on that a bit and then you zoom out and think about the structure of the weight of the whole chair or the structure of the whole chapter or spend a while, you know, picking one chapter out of the middle of a bunch of really good books and making yourself analyze what's happening structurally in each of those chapters and work on chapter level craft for a while and then go back to the paragraph level craft suddenly you've gotten better even while you weren't doing it because you've learned how to think about it in other ways. And so I think that people who are working on mastering a craft very frequently sort of pick the skill in front of them. You know, it's, I'm learning calligraphy today. I'm going to work on Q and I'm going to draw Q 500 times, which you do when you're learning calligraphy. But if you draw Q 500 times and then spend a while studying a whole bunch of different, you know, other things and then go back to it, 
you also make progress while you're not doing it. I can see that. I can absolutely see that because there are there are the, the seeds and essence of crafting a cue uh, uh, because it is a craft are inherently found in those other aspects of the craft as well and, and on some atomic level. Right. And, you know, when I look back over the many ways that I have learned writing and the many different exercises I did to learn writing, the ones that I look back and remember that I can most acutely say, yes, this absolutely helped my writing. My, you know, novel chapters that I wrote after I did this are much better than the ones I wrote before were things that had nothing to do with novel writing. <laughs> uh, they were things like when I did that prose poetry course at Interlock and we're like, okay, we're going to work on things and none of them is going to be longer than one paragraph, but we're going to make that one paragraph incredibly powerful, which is not something I had ever thought about because I was writing novels. I had been thinking about the broad specter, but then when I went back to novel writing, suddenly I gave more attention and more artistry to each paragraph. Okay. Uh, and similarly, I think the thing that... You can go to the manuscript I was working on at the time and just tell where the line is between before and after I did this was when I had to edit my dissertation prospectus down from 40 pages to oh. 17 pages. Oh, damn! <laughs> and I had just to cut and cut and cut and cut. This is tedious, tedious academic <laughs> prose. I, I will say this of my own academic prose at that point as an early career grad student. This was tedious academic prose. And I would never before doing it have imagined that it would teach me to be a better fantasy writer. Sure. But what it taught me to do was to spot my own writing ticks when I, what words I overuse, when I repeat myself, when phrases are longer than they need to be. So that then when I went back to my own prose, it was tighter and it was cleaner and it was more to the point that I packed more content and more action into every page than I had before. And I learned that from tedious academic prose. <laughs> well, and that kind of teaches, again, with the, the, the quality that you're espousing, that be, being able to not only zoom in and zoom out, but also zoom laterally within the craft mm -hmm. in apparently unrelated areas like nonfiction to fiction. But as we've heard several times on the roundtable, uh, you learn just as much about your fiction prose uh, doing nonfiction as you do writing fiction. Excellent. Melanie, let me ask you, uh, uh, this, this experience that Ada is describing of, of the zooming in and then the zooming out. Uh, uh, friends, Melanie is in the process of crafting an epic tale herself. And I'm just curious, Melanie, have you experienced getting stuck in one of those levels of Zoom? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> I, well, I happen to have the special problem of also having ADHD. So I have, uh, you know, most people think about ADHD as in like you get distracted a lot, but there's the other side of the coin of hyper-focusing. Mm. So, you know, you get stuck on a thing where it's like, okay, I'm trying to make every sentence perfect. And then you lose sight of the story beyond that, you know? So what Ada's saying is is actually really helpful um, for people, you know, who have a hard time with that. Sure. Um, do you I'm have sure. a, a system or a flag that goes up something that tells you, okay, Melanie, you're, you're focusing way too much on sentences. Let's back off. Do you have some sort of trip trigger that, that uh, informs you that you've spent too long uh, working I on can, one thing? I can usually tell. I mean, you know, just by the way I feel about things, um, I can tell when I'm getting like really bogged down. I mean, I've lived with this for a long time. <laughs> so, you know, I over, over time I learned to recognize, okay, I'm feeling really discouraged. 
okay, it's not the story, it's me. So let's move on to this other section. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. And recognizing that makes you a better writer. That's cool, (laughs) that's cool. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Ada Palmer after this brief promotional break. What are you doing in the kitchen? Writing a short story. With a meat mallet? Well, yeah. My characters are giving me trouble. What about the cheese grater? I have to make sure my plot points are evenly spread to the whole story, don't I? Oh, my action scene is done. Wow, you got it perfectly browned. 350 degrees for 12 minutes. Ah, perfect. The Melting Podcast, a writing variety show featuring a little of everything from everyone, everywhere. Short and flash fiction, author interviews, book reviews, and more. Come visit the Disaster Kitchen and cook up a story. Something's burning. My dialogue! Now, let's get back to the conversation with Ada Palmer. Ada, I don't want to dwell on this too long, but one other one other quality for a, a student of, of the writerly arts. Um, I think it really helps. I mean, this is a, I think it really helps when people have a passion for and enjoy pulling apart and comparing and, and gnawing on different examples of writing and particularly different restructurings of the same thing. Okay. Uh, that if you have a passion for that, it really helps you learn about the craft and structuring of stories. So, for example, uh, one project I've been doing a lot recently with some students who are also interested in it, and just for my own fun, is watching a zillion different versions of performances of the same Shakespeare plays. Mm, okay. Uh, specifically the histories in this case, but you can do it with any of them. So, you know, just watching eight different versions of Henry VI. Because every time someone produces one, they cut different things. Sure. Because these plays are very, very long. (laughs) Uh, So you cut different things. And when you cut different things, you can completely change who the protagonist is. (laughs) So there's a performance of Henry IV, uh, the Hollow Crown version, which is actually about Henry IV. Because they've cut a lot of Falstaff and not cut any of Henry IV. And I remember watching and being like, my God, I've seen eight versions of Henry IV and it's never been about Henry IV <laughs> How did they do this? And then you go back and you look at the craftsmanship of what they put in and what they took out. And you realize how those lines that they removed, you realize what they did. You realize what the presence of that now absent line did and how it changed the course of the story. Uh, or in the versions I just watched of Henry VI, that was an amazing thing. This was actually the hollow crown Henry VI compared to others. There's a point in there where um, the Duke of York has been trying to claim the English throne. And he has just uh, agreed to stop trying to claim the English crown, crown on condition that after the death of the current king, the crown will go to York's sons instead of the current king's sons. That's the sort of the truce. Uh, And there's a scene at dinner where his sons are trying to convince him to break this deal and to to break his promise and to try to take the crown anyway. And immediately after that scene, we discover that, in fact, the other people have already betrayed him and are marching (laughs) in to try to kill him. 
But in Shakespeare's text, there's one line at the end where the, the boys make their persuasive, you know, father, here is the argument of why you should break your promise. And in the Shakespeare one at the end, he just says, you know, yes, you're right. I'll do it. And then, of course, they've already betrayed him and come down on him. But in this version, they cut that. They cut the one line where he says yes. Wow. And suddenly he felt like a completely different character. Because suddenly it felt like he was an innocent man of his word who was, you know, cruelly betrayed by his enemies. And they did this in order to make his eventual death be a tragic death that would then be a tragic death motivator for his son, Richard, who will later be Richard III. And they wanted this to be why Richard became evil. Wow. They, they were turning this into a tragic backstory. One one line changes the entire interpretation of the play. Wow. Whereas when that line is in there, then the focus is actually much more on York himself and his complicated, dual-faceted character. And sometimes he's good and sometimes he's bad. And by by looking at a bunch of them side by side and comparing them to each other, even though they're so similar, I mean, it's literally the same dialogue, just with some bits removed, you become so much more aware of how one line can completely change the characterization of a character and therefore the structure of a whole story, even to the degree of changing who's the protagonist. So suddenly this is a play about young Richard instead of about his father, York. I can see that uh, being incredibly valuable during the revision process as you start examining your, your scenes and chapters and so on and, yeah. and uh, cultivating an awareness of your power as the crafter of a tale uh, uh, to make minute changes that can profoundly affect the, the manuscript. Exactly. And if your problem is you're looking over the book is that you've given it to a beta reader and the beta reader has been like, you know, this character seems really important, but didn't have as much development as I expected. And you're sitting here thinking that character wasn't supposed to be important. That was a minor character. Uh, <laughs> this kind of thing helps you go back through and see where you accidentally put in flags that made it seem like this character would be more important than you meant. Okay. Or vice versa, where you should have put in flags to make a character seem more important and and didn't. And so it you know it helps you on the overall structure thing realize how characters balance with each other. Cuz a lot of people focus on plot as being the centerpiece of a book. But in many ways plot is only a very small element of a book. And and elements of pacing and elements of character balance are often rather independent of plot. You know, in that mm -hmm. Shakespeare example, exactly the same events occur. Mm -hmm. But York is a completely different character, therefore Richard is a completely different character, therefore the whole thing feels like a tragic, you know, this is the consequence of past tragedy as opposed to feeling like, oh, this is a bad guy who was born naturally evil. Sure, and the, the emotional perspective of the, the audience or the reader then is also fundamentally changed. So their perception of that pace and, and the emotional arcs that they're following changes. Holy crap, that, that's without actually kind plot, of intimidating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, without the plot changing one jot. Yeah. If you made a plot summary, it would be word for word the same, and yet what the actual story is is completely different. Holy crap. Uh, and that's what you learn when you enjoy comparing multiple similar versions of the same thing. Hmm. Whether it's whether it's, you know, three different television series made about one historical character, you know, five different versions of the life of Napoleon. Reading biographies of historical figures, nonfiction biographies is a great way to do this, because biographers do this, making people into heroes and villains. Sure, picking uh, which details to advance and which ones to obscure. Right. 
or whether you're looking at the remake of a show or whether you're looking at the original draft of a script and then the version of the script that finally got filmed, you know, anything where you can get multiple close together versions of the same thing in order to compare them just lets you exercise the part of your brain that's learning how to tell which small details affect a story that aren't plot that are that are something much more substructury than plot that is incredibly empowering and at the same time also very daunting uh, uh <laughs> from, from my perspective as a young 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 writer uh uh that, that's incredible I'm, i actually i want to turn the mic over to melanie because melanie brings a whole different aesthetic to the to the roundtable vibe melanie i know you've got questions for ada what, what did you have on your list Okay, well, I was going to kind of focus on what we take to the table as a writer. We've all heard the saying, write what you know. Ada, you're a historian, um, and you have a science fiction novel. Um, Mm -hmm. I was wondering, what prompted you to write science fiction instead of, say, like, historical fiction? Um, Yeah, everyone would expect historical fiction. (laughs) (laughs) And do do you see the history and science fiction connected at all in your mind? I think very much so. Uh, and and framing framing history as a social science, what I've written is social science fiction, in that it's not about technology details, physics, uh, inventions. It's about cultures, social change, human relationships, communications, webs, economics. Uh, all of these questions of social science, which are studied and real every bit as much as questions of, of physics or other hard sciences. Um, yeah, I'm a professional historian as opposed to a, a person who loves and enjoys and does history personally on an amateur level. And for me, what the difference between those two things is, is that my job as a professional historian is to work on what we don't know not what we do know. It is not my job to learn all the details that we know about a particular thing. There are wonderful, wonderful amateur historians who are geniuses at this and can recite for you, you know, every single place <laughs> Anne Boleyn ever went and every dress she ever wore, which is really great. And and those people write great historical fiction or help other people write great historical fiction. What I worry about at work every day is how much we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Where were these people? I don't know. Who was this guy? We just have his name. His name was Niccolo. Who was he? Was he this Niccolo? Was he that Niccolo? Ah, we don't know. We don't know anything. Why did they invade this place? They never said. What are you doing, historical figures? Why are you doing this? Uh, and, and so... In fact, my training is less in knowing stuff than it is in question asking, the arts of question asking, when you're looking at a society knowing which questions to ask, like what networks of power surround this figure. And if I'm working on the Renaissance and you say, you know, here's a person, I know the correct palette of questions to ask, questions like, which families is his family the the inherited client family of? And is he a member of the Guelph or Ghibelline political party? Or is he in any religious confraternities? If so, which monastic orders are they tied to? <laughs> and, and you can tell me things like, well, he went to the Church of St. Dominic. And I will say, aha, did his parents <laughs> have trade connections with Spain? And he'll say, yes. Yes. <laughs> That there is a five steps removed connection between going to a church of St. Dominic and having trade ties with Spain. But you have to know exactly the correct palette of questions to ask for that. And 
when I went about wanting to write a science fiction story then, my interest was in creating a future of which I could ask the kinds of questions a historian asks, like, what is the normal social unit of the family? Because that's different at different points in time. Right now we have the sort of nuclear family as a standard, but earlier than that it would be the extended family and all of the grandparents and cousins and so on would live in one big house. Uh, and there are also long periods of time where it's a multifamily thing, where you would have the the powerful family and then several servant families living in the same house, and that was the standard social unit. Um, so I wanted to make a future that I asked that question, what is the social unit in this future? It shouldn't be the same as, I shouldn't assume it's going to be the same that it is in the 21st century, because it sure wasn't the same any any other centuries as it was now, so why should that be the same in the future. So I went about crafting a society in the future for which I could answer all the questions that I as a historian want to ask of a world. So you can that's basically why the historian's science fiction and for me is something much closer to the craft of history as it's practiced by an academic historian than a lot of historical fiction, which is much more about what we don't know. And when I think about writing historical fiction, I'm like, but how could I possibly write this historical fiction? We don't know what that thing was, and we don't know what this was. And like, okay, ancient Romans, right? They had these things. They were made of bronze, and they were shaped like a 12-sided die with little rods sticking out of all of the sides. And we've excavated dozens and dozens of dozens of them, and we have no idea what they're for. <laughs> but, but that's what historical fiction, things? Ada. You can make that shit up. Yes, exactly. If I decide what it is, then like five years later, someone will discover what it really is. I'll <laughs> be wrong. Because we're wrong about everything all the time yeah. in history. We're constantly proving that the things that we thought were true a little while ago are false. Because that's how science works, right? We're always replacing our theories with better theories, including historical ones and things that that are true now are not going to be true soon. And this goes for physics as well as going for ancient Rome. Anyone writing near science fiction, near future science fiction, totally gets what you're saying. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Very cool. We have, uh, we have discovered, in fact, that you can use one of these 12-sided things to knit fingerless gloves. Uh, we don't think that's what they're actually for. But, but it can be can. done. It <laughs> I've got one. We're, we're 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 out of time, but I'm. But it's my podcast, so I'm going to ask one more question. Um, uh, just real quick, Ada, uh, you've mentioned uh, that you find short fiction writing very challenging, and I, I was just curious, what do you find challenging about it? And and are you doing anything to to try and overcome those challenges, or have you just accepted this as your burden as a writer that you'll never write short fiction? Uh, answering those in reverse order, I am doing something about it. I'm spending tons of time reading lots of short fiction. <laughs> Good for you. Uh, and uh, right now I'm really enjoying the Vandermeer anthology, The Weird. Mm, I don't know if yes. you know it, but it's the chronological organization of weird horror. It's so good. You can watch the short story evolve over time and sort of expectations of if there is a reveal, how reveals work change decade by decade, which is really fascinating. Uh, so, I mean, I think that the only way to to get the skill of working in any particular length is to read a whole lot of it sure. uh, and, and digest it and see if you can uh, spit it out and doing a lot of trying to work out the structures of things. So I am working on it. Uh, it's hard. I just 
uh, I have never had any story concept show up and then stay small. Short story. <laughs> <laughs> to, they always hook into a larger world, and I always want to uh, explore the the length and breadth of that and connect it to deeper metaphysics stuff. And of course, you can do wonderful stuff with metaphysics in short fiction, which is what the weird does over and over and over. Uh, but it is stop just a moment it. just a moment do you hear that sound that is the sound of hundreds of rtp listeners nodding their heads emphatically <laughs> at, at your plight of a story idea not staying small yeah. <laughs> but i do think that that analyzing the craft of uh stories particularly you know my, my current thing is that i've picked out a couple of particular stories whose structures i really like not the plot not the character the actual structure the pace at which the emotional feelings the reader is having change over time like this is the point at which you feel anxiety this is the point at which you feel awe this is the point at which you feel triumph uh and sort of rereading those dozens of times and seeing if i can create something that's going to have that same structural sequence okay i don't know if it'll work but that's my current plan hey that's a plan and and we wish you the best with it Absolutely, absolutely, guys. I'm I'm sorry. The the clock has just taken an inanimate uh, toy soldier and and brought it to life miraculously <laughs> before my very eyes, uh, and has sent it towards me with malice and intent, uh, a forethought, which I can only assume uh, means either I'm in the 25th century or we're out of time. I'm going to go with the latter. Uh, it, this has been a delight. Thank you so much. I appreciate My you pleasure. taking the time. My pleasure. Excellent. Uh, Melanie, wow. My, my mind is kind of reeling at this point uh, with all the fabulosity that we just covered under that 20-ish minutes of conversation. What what are you taking away from this? What's, what's stuck out for you that you're going to cram in your writerly toolbox? Oh, wow. Um... I know, well, right? <laughs> well, basically the whole conversation about being a good student of the craft, mm-hmm. but um, also um, the, the conversation about the history and science, I kind of have the opposite problem where as I'm a astrophysicist by training um, and trying to write science fiction is extraordinarily hard for me because I have to keep trying to jam in all the <laughs> actual facts or this can't happen or you know <laughs> what if this is discovered to be wrong in two years which it very well could you know so that I found to be very valuable so yeah I I'm, can absolutely I'm a see that. fan now <laughs> <laughs> awesome no I, I, I hear you I agree and actually the thing that stuck for me was was very much from that same conversation uh, uh, it was it was Ada's uh, uh, pointing out that, that her job as a professional historian is to focus on what you don't know and I hadn't really considered that before but yeah. that makes good sense which also then I cannot help but extrapolate to to the role of the professional speculative fiction writer um, and and there is that phase that we all go through I certainly did when when I started writing that you're uh, a lot of your writing feels like a pastiche it feels like I loved this about speculative fiction when I was getting into it so I want to recreate this and and by the, the, the model that was presented that kind of makes you a hobbyist which is perfectly awesome and fabulous but uh, there there's a point that you reach where y- your job is not to affirm what's already known in the genre uh, but you can take on the quest of exploring what isn't known and I think the, the writers that are, that are opening up new doors of perspective and excitement in the genre are doing exactly that. So that really kind of blew my mind. Yeah. Especially was- because the 
you know, when when people want to read a new person, it's because they want to read the new unique things that that person brings to it. You know, exactly. You, you, young aspiring writer, are awesome and have awesome new things to do. Do those things, not only duplicates <laughs> of things other people have already done. Exactly. Exactly. And and then we've said many times here on the podcast that that unique vision, that thing that inspires you is your mojo as a writer. Uh, so so indulging in those things and aspects that you love, even though you may feel, oh, I'm not sure it's appropriate to the genre. Bullshit. It is absolutely relevant <laughs> because it's you and you have chosen to take up the pen or the keyboard or whatever writing implement you use uh, uh, to tell your tales. So by all means. All right, guys, that was fascinating. Fabulous. Obviously, you're agog. We're agog. Our, our heads are going. But here's the fabulous thing about the roundtable. You come back in seven days. We're going to have Ada back. We're going to have Melanie back. I'll be here. And we're going to add into this, this frothy mix of creative insight and exploration a courageous guest writer, a creative and courageous guest writer who's going to set us at the table for a brainstorming feast. And we're going to dive in with our fingers. We're going to eschew... Uh, utensils and cutlery all together. We're going to dive in with our fingers and and feast on this incredible brainstorming adventure. Uh, but that's seven days from now, and I know that's a long damn time. Melanie, help our listeners out. What what can they do to make these next seven days just just fly by? Well, you know, not to uh, draw attention from your fabulous podcast, Dave. <laughs> but there's another podcast out there that I work with. Is there? That, yes, there is. It's called the Once in Future Podcast, and it's hosted by urban fantasy author Anton Strout. And he does, he talks with a lot of great authors out there, and they talk about writing and gaming and all kinds of nerdery. And I think that could be a fun pastime for the next seven days. I think it would be fun and informative because the Once in Future podcast is badass. Uh, absolutely. I, I think that's an excellent. Friends, you have your marching orders. When, when we're done here, you, you switch over, Google that bad boy. Actually, I'll go ahead and put a link in the liner notes. Just go to the liner notes. Check out the Once in Future podcast because, yes, there is much goodness to be had there. Well said, ma'am. Well said. <laughs> and I will tell you, friends, as I always do, you find what you're looking for so look for the wow look for the oh hell yeah uh, look for the holy crap uh if you look for that stuff i promise you guys you will find it and it will be fabulous we'll be back in just seven days until then you guys stay cool stay frothy and stay awesome and we'll talk to you soon bye-bye This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter, at Writers Podcast. 
And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.